the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I'm launching a new podcast. First podcast I've ever done. It's going to be called The Interview, because that's what I've done for 30 years, long-form interviews. And some of the most memorable long-form interviews I've ever done is with my next guest, an old friend, Stephen Pressfield. And Stephen, good morning to you. It's good to see you. It's good to have you back. And congratulations on your new book, A Man at Arms, which I'm holding here in the studio with me. Uh, it's always great to finish a book, but this one has really got me interested. Welcome. How you doing? It's great to be with you, Hugh. Thanks a lot. Um, this is a whole new scenario here. Every time we've done this before, we've been in the same studio together. So, so uh, let's go for it. All right. Well, I want to begin by saying A Man at Arms, which is available now for pre-order and at stephenpressfield.com, has on it, I, I think it's an interesting choice, a beautiful cover, but it also says best-selling author of Gates of Fire. And I wonder if you like that or don't like that, because if it were me, I would have put on best-selling author of Lionsgate or best-selling author of Killing Rommel. Actually, Lionsgate's my favorite. Do you mind always being associated with Gates of Fire, even when you've got a new book out? Uh, not at all, really. I mean, that's I'm really proud of that book. And also, I think it's it's really the one that sold the most for me. So, you know, so that's the one that's, you know, it's sort of... Uh, you know, if I'm associated with anything primarily, it's that book. So, no, I'm very happy to be associated with Gates of Fire. All right. Now, I think A Man at Arms is going to rival that. Now, I think The Lion's Gate's one of the most emotional books I've read. But I think every warrior, like they are drawn, the people I know in the military have all read Gates of Fire. And I now think they're all going to read A Man at Arms. Have you had that kind of reaction from the men and women who are warriors that you know? Yes, I have. And not only from uh, men and women in uniform, but from uh, from uh, literary people as well. You know, from my agent, my publisher, people that uh, are, uh, you know, that, that like yourself, that are real readers and that look at things beyond, uh, you know, say um, the uh, the actual subject matter, the military subject matter. But, yeah, definitely, because a lot of my friends are, you know, active duty or retired and uh they're definitely responding really well to this. Well, I, I spoke with one of our mutual friends who I will not name over the weekend, and I can't wait to hear what he thinks because he's the warrior personified. So let's go then, Stephen, to talking about uh, why this book, because the Roman Legion clearly impresses everyone with a grasp of history. But what this book is so different from anything you've done before. Why did you do it? Um. Let me ask you. Let me ask you a question back, Hugh. Why do you think the book is so different from? What's different uh, in your point of view? It is much more religious. Uh, it is much more interested in the spiritual side of life, the warrior ethos, the warrior virtues. I associate that with Stephen Pressfield. I never expected to see someone with a grasp of early Christianity as you display in this book. From you, ah, that's okay. That's very interesting. You know, it's funny. Or let's see if I can answer this, Hugh. Um, this character, the lead character in A Man in Arms, is a character that's a recurring character in other books of mine. He was in The Virtues of War, and he was in Tides of War. 
as just kind of a straight warrior, like a one-man killing machine type of yep. uh, Clint Eastwood, man with no name type of character. So he's this recurring character, and, and uh, people have asked me, and I've asked myself, how about writing a book just about him and following his journey, which has always been kind of fascinating to me because he's kind of a warrior philosopher in that he's, he's not satisfied with just doing what, you know, weaponry and stuff like that. He wants to move beyond that. So as this book, you know, unfolded, and you know how books go, you know, you start something and it, it, it goes its own way. I found that it was just becoming more kind of faith-based and more in, onto the soul level than onto just the physical level. And um, so it just sort of evolved into this, um, you know, uh, much more faith-based uh, point of view. There is a lot of spirituality in The Legend of Bagger Vance and in a number of your other books. And Alcibiades, I mean, there is a lot of Greek understanding and Roman understanding. But this is your first, as far as I know, it's your first grappling with the Christian story. Am I right about that? Yeah, that's that's true. Although, I mean, The Legend of Bagger Vance was a bit of, uh, you know, a bit of um, coming up against the edges of that, even though it was kind of based on a, a Hindu scripture, and it was really Krishna. But um, but it, it was already uh, getting into that area, yes. So but you've come is, back around. time that I've, uh, that I've addressed it directly. Now, I, I always, when I do a novelist, I don't want to give away anything except clues. I will simply say that the Apostle Paul is central to a man at arms, even though Telamon, the warrior, is the central character. I am curious what you, you don't describe it much. What do you think of Paul at the end of your work and labor and your obvious deep research into early Christendom and his life and travels? What do you think of Paul? Um, in, in many ways, I mean, Paul is sort of um, almost an equal figure to Jesus in terms of establishing the, the, um, the articulation of the faith, you know? And it seems to me that Paul boils it down to love. You know, charity, faith, hope, and charity, but charity is the greatest of them. So he's also a very kind of mysterious figure to me um, that... Uh, we don't know that much about how he actually did what he did. But he, you know, it's funny, I'll tell you a little story here. Um, a couple of years ago, I was asked by my niece who was getting married to be the officiant, to be the one who did the marriage. Oh. And I went to the Book of Common Prayer to, uh, you know, sort of put together what I was going to say or what the vows were going to be. And, uh, of course, a lot of that is straight out of Paul's, First Corinthians. So that kind of really got me into that, you know, uh, idea about uh, love suffereth long and is kind, love believeth all things, endureth all things, etc., etc. And uh, so that that's really a, a, an underground river, a current that got into this book. Part, part of your gift is to create images of people in your reader's mind, images of the Spartans at Thermopylae, images of Alcibiades, images of soccer, images of people. What do you imagine Paul to have been like? Wow. You know, I, I tell you the truth, you, I've never, like, created an image of him in my mind other than, you know, somebody wearing a robe of some kind. But no, I don't have an image. 
Do you have one? Yeah, a peripatetic little guy who won't shut up. Uh, and, and so I, I really, I find him to be fascinating, but we don't know. Now, I want to go to a couple of other things. You have an assessment of early first century Judaism of three of three general categories. The elites, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the zealots who hate Rome, and then the Nazarenes, the Christians. Uh, how did you dive into this? I mean, where did you go to learn not only about early Christianity, but about late temple Judaism? Um, as, you, as you were mentioned before, an earlier book of mine, The Lion's Gate, and, which is about the, uh, the Six-Day War, the Israeli-Arab War of 1967. And I went over to Israel for nine weeks to research that. And uh, I was just kind of exposed not only to the land, but to, you know, like I interviewed like 75 veterans of that war. And uh, somehow I just kind of inculcated, you know, it just I, by osmosis, I just sort of absorbed that. Because, you know, every conversation in Israel gets back to the Bible very fast, you know, and, and the land of Israel. So I think I sort of absorbed it there. But also, as a writer, you know, you take liberties with stuff, right? You want to construct the story and give it uh, certain structural elements that are going to work. And I always like to break things into threes, you know, so uh, the rule of three. So I liked having those three elements because they all played into the story, three elements of early Judaism. Um, so that's... Uh, it's the first words, time I've actually really seen... it that great, Hugh. I, I sort of picked the story and went with it. Well, I, I thought the, uh, the portrayal of the zealots, about whom we know a little but not a lot, uh, is was missing from my understanding of the era, and I I get the Romans, I get the Christians, I get the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but I hadn't really thought much about the Zealots, even though there's Simon the Zealot. Let me ask you about your depth of understanding of the physical desert. Now I read Killing Rommel, and I thought that was terrific, but this is at a whole different granular level because Killing Rommel is a mobilized, mechanized war. Uh, they don't have to survive on scorpion sap. And, and these little, how did you get that? Um, well, part of it was that trip to Israel. Um, you know, I didn't actually get to go into the Sinai Desert because it was Egypt and it was out of bounds. But I talked to and interviewed a bunch of guys who were in the Sinai campaign in 67. And, and, and uh, they had a lot of photos and they told me a lot of stories. And I, I sort of, you know... Um, evolved it that way in my own mind. And also there's a wonderful movie. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie called Theeb. Have you ever seen it? T-H-E-E-B? No. It's huh. by a, a young Jordanian director, and it's kind of about that desert. And uh, I watched that about five times and just sort of soaked it all in, you know, the geography and how the wells worked and how you got water out of the wells and all that kind of thing. Oh, the, the quick takeaway is you, you would do journeys by the number of wells you had to cover. Sixty yeah, well, exactly. it's a sixty well journey. Uh, something I didn't know. Now, the interesting thing that I love—the big philosophical question—the idea of Rome is invincible. Uh, you know, Edward Gibbon and maybe the Emperor Julian blamed the decline of Rome on Christianity. Do you come to that conclusion at the end? I I, I do. Interesting. And uh, that, that, you know, there's that, not to give away too much, but there's that one uh, bit of dialogue in the book where 
one character, a Roman tribune, says that the emperor doesn't fear armies at all. He knows he can defeat armies, but what he does fear is a faith, a new faith. That's what can do it. That That is the one I wrote along with the witch's decision, which I won't give too much away, <laughs> and why she changes. And it comes down to what is Rome susceptible to? So how much had you studied... And I know you know the Greeks backwards and forwards, and you're so deep into the Greeks, but how much did you study the Roman brutality, their their way of winning? Um, I, I, I didn't really uh, do massive research in that. I just sort of know it tangentially from, well, I guess I should say I have done lots of research over the years, but not specifically for this book. But that was, you know, Rome was like a machine yep. more than say, the Spartans or the Athenians or even Alexander. Um, it was order was their thing, you know, that a, a commander gives an order and everybody follows it out. And uh, that was really their secret to conquering the world, that they were they were a machine. Yeah. I, I, I like the fact that you have Telamon, the central character, at one point say, I was in the legions, I was never of them. First of all, that's very evocative of the Christian understanding and the uh, admonition to be in the world but not of it. But it's also, um, you conveyed the commitment that re- was required to the Legion. I mean, it was decades of your life when you put up yeah, your you hand and joined. Yeah, signed up for 25 years. Yeah, that was a hell of a hitch. <laughs> when you signed up for the Marines, it was like three, wasn't it? Well, it was six in the reserves. But six. Yeah, 25 years, that's a serious commitment. It is, and, and Legion 10, I looked it up uh, to prepare for this, which is the central legion in the, in the book, was actually in Judea. Is that why you picked it? Because it was uh, actually uh, coordinate with the, the period that you're covering? Yeah, because it was the true legion. There actually were two legions, the 10th Fratensis and the 10th Gemina, but uh, the 10th Fratensis was the one in Judea at the time. And actually, uh, in as far as the the Jewish people are concerned, the Tenth Legion is like the devil, because they were the ones who burned the temple in 70 A.D. They were the ones who sacked Masada, and um, you know they were the ones who really initiated the diaspora, basically kicked the Jews out of the Holy Land in 70 A.D. So the Tenth Tenth Legion was also Caesar's legion originally you know, a hundred and something years earlier in Gaul. That's why I went back and looked at why this legion, so it made perfect sense to me. Now, I also wonder, how much did you have to die? The, the, a man-at-arms suggests that the weaponry is going to be very significant, and indeed, throughout the book, we've got the Spatha, the Gladius, the Javelin, I mean, the whole nine yards. This is the Roman legioner, a legionnaire, uh, with some additional superpowers, not superpowers, but a special weaponry. He doesn't have any superpowers. How long did that take, Stephen? Is that already in the in the press field lore? That was already that was already in the press field lore. You know, I really thought of Telamon Hugh as uh, um, you remember the movie The Seven Samurai, of course. And yeah. or so I I thought of him as kind of a solitary samurai. That has, you know, the sword, has the bow, doesn't have any weapons that involve gunpowder, but is like a uh, Clint Eastwood man with no name using those weapons, those edged weapons and those missile weapons. 
There, there is a great scene in the opening of uh, Achilles, Brad Pitt, Troy, where he just comes up and kills the big guy. And that's sort of like your opening scene here, which sort of sets the parameters of the man-at-arms physical abilities. Um, do you think most warriors will agree that he's believable? I think he's believable because of his flaws. Uh, he's not a superhero. What do you think? I, I hope he's believable. I mean, I, I don't think he... You know, any sort of classic character, like, say, in a Western or a John Wick character or a John Wayne character or a Clint Eastwood character, you usually have some kind of a scene where, you know, they take on multiple antagonists, right? A bar fight or a gun fight or something like that, and they wipe out, you know, five or six people at once. And, and I think you, or at least me in the audience, I usually accept that, you know? They're just great with a weapon they can do it they're like achilles and we accept that they're like you know not necessarily a superhero but really skilled with with the weapons that they're working with yeah i've been i've been blessed to know a lot of seals as you have yeah and, and if they're in a gunfight they're pretty skilled at what they do they yeah. they know what they're doing they've trained yeah. a lot hi everyone if you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault listen up we have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Now, I want to talk to you about the warrior ethos. You've got a video series, by the way, over at Stephen Pressfield. Uh, how long does that go for, and why did you start that? That's clearly not just about a man-at-arms. That's got to go far beyond a man-at-arms. Uh, well, thanks for asking about that, Hugh. This is actually, uh, it's been going on for 26 weeks. It's on Instagram. I do like two, five, six, seven-minute videos a week, and um, actually... I think this week is going to be the last one. It's going to be number 50. Um, but I just wanted to, you know, from working on Telemon, I kind of got really interested in the warrior archetype in the sense, the Jungian sense of the collective unconscious and um, the various archetypes that we evolve through. And I just, I'm kind of a believer that you learn stuff by teaching it or by talking about it. And you find out what you think by kind of forcing yourself to, to teach something. So um, I just wanted to do that. I wanted to take it from the Spartans. The series starts talking about the Spartans at Thermopylae and kind of goes through Alexander the Great and finally comes down to Telamon. I hope I'm not blathering on too much here, Hugh. Oh, no, please go. Go, go. But I, yeah. I wanted to take it from, like, to me, the ancient Spartans were the supreme collective expression of the warrior archetype or the warrior ethos. You know, a whole society that believed in this one thing. But then as you evolve through 
the Romans, the Macedonians, and so forth. And finally you get down to this character of Telamon. He's just an individual, a solitary individual, kind of like the samurai ronin or the gunfighter, which to me is a metaphor for the life that you and I are living today, you know, where we're sort of cut free. And this is a whole spiritual thing and a whole faith-based thing, where we're cut free from... Um, an overall societal concept of what the world is like and what heaven is like and all that kind of thing. And we as individuals have to kind of define our own state, our own aspiration, our own relation to other dimensions of reality. And I, I think that's, that's why the character of Telamon is so fascinating to me, because he's a metaphor for what you and I are struggling with in the modern world today, kind of cut free. Like if you think about the medieval church, I mean, if you lived back in 1100 or 1200 or 1400, you were completely in a world, a self-contained world, where you knew what heaven was, you knew what hell was, you knew what your role was. And you, you didn't have that sort of exquisite torture that we have today of having to define that all for ourselves. It doesn't actually start until the Industrial Revolution when people are cut free, or maybe the French Revolution. People are cut free from their uh, their yeah. station they really in life. Invented this thing called the individual until yeah. then. Now, the most surprising thing in this book to me is, you know, the warrior ethos he discusses on page one hundred six. I do not serve money; I serve for the serving only. Fight for the fighting only. Tramp for the tramping only. It's kind of the essence, the distillation of the warrior ethos. And then flash forward many dozens of pages and far in the narrative. And the Nazarene Michael, who is about as far removed from Telamon in calling and activity, uh, is having a conversation with him, which people have to read. And Telamon says to Michael, who is a civilian civilian, he's like me. Uh, I admire you. This is the warrior says to Michael, I admire you. You are a warrior and a man. I have nothing but respect for you. This is a revelation to me because a warrior saying you don't have to be a warrior. Yes. I mean, one of the things that, without giving away too much of the story, Michael the Nazarene is really uh, a follower of Jesus, or certainly a follower of Paul. And as such, he takes the worst that the Romans can dish out physically, torture, and he never cracks. So in that sense, that's why Telamon respects him so much, that, that he is a, a, a spiritual warrior and a physical warrior in terms of enduring hell and not wavering from his, from his beliefs and his faith. That is, it's, it's, it's a very interesting dialogue. That might be the heart of the book in terms of dialogue. Because I think it is, actually. Okay. It's the collision of the, the agnostic warrior, or even the atheist warrior, who yeah. doesn't, and, and argues with Michael about the existence or the possibility of faith. And I would recommend people to it who are believers for that conversation. Got to ask you, though, about, you know, a lot of apologetics, a lot of Christian apologetics are focused on the cross, Stephen. You dug into crucifixion in the way that I've never seen a non-Christian do. Uh, uh, wh why? I mean, how? <laughs> well, 
first of all, I got to say one thing to you, Hugh. I got to really, you're a tremendous, you're sort of a writer's dream in terms of talking about something because you, you really have read the material at such a depth and your questions are so great. They always are. So I really thank you for that. Well, thank you. Okay. Um, but back, back to the crucifixion, writing the cross. I, I think that, you know, in any story, I don't care whether it's Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca or whatever, you name it, there always comes a moment when the hero is, is broken, you know, is taken in some extreme, whether it's emotional or physical, they, they go up against the ultimate uh, challenge and, and they, they crack, you know, like Jesus on the cross. And um, so to me, the crucifixion is like the, uh, the, this, the extreme example of that in, um, you know, in history or in storytelling. So any hero has to go through some ordeal like that, and that's kind of, I, I don't want to give away too much more, but that's, that's why that stuff is in there. Most Christians listening to this will have thought long and hard about the crucifixion of Jesus and possibly two other people, the good thief and the bad thief. Mm-hmm. And maybe some Christians will have seen Spartacus and will know that, that all of the Spartacus slaves were crucified on the way back to Rome. But they will not have thought about the actual construction and the rather extravagant use of crucifixion. What did that say to you about the Romans, Stephen? Yeah, they were just like I say. They it was it's a. I mean, some. I if we think about things like the Holocaust, we have to say that our modern world we're capable of the unbelievable cruelty. But certainly in the ancient world, they were. You know, they. I don't know. The concept of empathy doesn't seem to have entered into too much of what they were what they were doing. They just found this exquisite way to just you know torture the hell out of somebody and make death a slow, agonizing process. They just uh, their their world was order and it was enacted by force, by physical force. They had to drain empathy, compassion out of everyone who served the eagle. That's what comes across in a man-at-arms, is that you can't really be a Roman and have a heart. Well, I'm sure that if we went back there, we'd find some people who did have hearts, but certainly in the legions and the way they operated, they were machines. They were war machines. Well, I got three more questions for you, Stephen. Number one, um, Egypt. There's a bit of Egypt here, and you reflect that after 22 centuries of the pharaohs, and after Alexander, the Ptolemy, Caesar, Anthony, how do the men of the Reedlands exist? Now, I've never, I don't even know if they're true. Are they true? Do they really exist? In, in that day, yes. From what I've read, yes. It's a remarkable passage. Uh, how did you discover the idea of the, I didn't know anything about them. Well, if you think about, uh, I don't know, I, I don't even know where I've read it, but I mean, the flooding of the Nile, the annual flooding of the Nile, and produced harvests of grain that, you know, basically could almost feed the world, you know. And there were, you know, tens of thousands of these um, agrarian guys that, that farmed that land, which is still true. The What do they call it? The cultivation along the sides of the Nile. Yeah. And they had the, these reed boats that could, uh, they, they drew so little water 
they would have like a draft of, you know, just inches, but they could carry massive loads of, of food and even um, the great stones, you know, for the pyramids. So it was, I've never really read an in-depth thing about it. A lot of it I just sort of invented. Well, I, I can't imagine moving the stones on a reed. It's just one of the more interesting. Well, so, I mean, a man. That, remember, I know you've read Contiki, right? That, yeah. Oh, yes. Yep. So, so that was a great, you know, incredible raft that these guys built and crossed the Pacific. An engineering marvel. Yeah. I, I just it's a it's an aside that a man at arms is full of penultimate question. Um, the. The trial scene, again, I won't give any details, in the ancestral village. Um, I don't know why it's there. I know everything else about this book. I'm still thinking about the trial. Why did Stephen Pressfield divert to the trial scene? So just give me a hint. Uh, I wanted to ground it back in, in the Greek world. Ah. Because you know, we'd been in the Roman world and we'd been in the Egyptian world and the, and the Jewish world, the Hebrew world. And I wanted to bring it back... And I particularly wanted to bring it back. Um, this is not giving away too much to say that in this land where the, uh, this trial takes place, the, uh, the Olympian gods don't really matter as much as their predecessors, the Titans. Yep. And they are the people who live in this area. They still kind of worship Prometheus and the Titans and um, Kronos and, and the, 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 the old gods, like they would say in Game of Thrones. So I, I just wanted to bring it back to that, to kind of ground the reader in, in Greece, because we were going to a climax in Greece. Well, now, now let me conclude this way, Stephen. A Man-at-Arms is going to be a huge success, like all your other books. And you've had such a varied and diverse career. And people can go back and read our other interviews or listen to them about how you got into writing and the disciplines that you practice. Are you done what are you going to do now for an encore if you're not done? <laughs> I don't know what else there's left. You've done the future. You've done the past. You've done every kind of conflict. You've even taken on golf. What are you going to do next? Well, I've never done you. You know, I sort of, I do, I'm kind of like an actors that when they get a role and the role finished, they think, oh, I'm never going to be hired again. Nobody's ever going to want me again. And I, I sort of have that same thing when I finish a book. I say, am I ever going to have another book? But... Something always comes up, and uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, we'll be back. You and I will be back talking again as long as you'll have me. Oh, I, I love this. A bonus question: Just indulge me. Of the degree of, de I don't ask people what their favorite books are because that doesn't make any sense. Like asking your favorite children, but I do ask about degree of difficulty. Um, if you ranked your books from the easiest to the most difficult to write, where does a man at arms come in? It comes in as one of the easiest, and I've found, for whatever reason, that the books that were the easiest for me are the ones that are the best, and the ones that somehow seem to find an audience best. The ones that I've labored over and that have been like, you know, working in the salt mines never seem to, you know, find an audience. But this one, it was ready to come, you know, I believe in the muse. And the muse was ready to give it to me, and she did. And you, I am grateful. I think A Man at Arms is going to find new audiences for Stephen Pressfield among Christian audiences that don't normally read this, among other faith groups that don't normally read in sort of the military warrior literature, and certainly among every other fan of Stephen Pressfield. Stephen, thank you, my friend. Great conversation. 
I look forward to the next one as always. Well, thank you, Hugh. Like I say, it is always a joy to talk to you because you are you're, you go in such depth and you're <laughs> so present. So thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Be well. Okay, bye for now. Bye-bye. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.